Good morning. It's awesome to be with you on the precipice of the greatest week uh, in December. Without Christmas, we would all move to Florida. So grateful for the time that we have to focus our hearts around what really matters. Christmas, is a, it's an exciting time, uh, especially if you have family that, is, that are nearby and little kids that are nearby and uh, you have traditions, nostalgia. Maybe you're not even a church person here today. I just want to acknowledge that, but like one of your church or your family traditions is coming to church, maybe the Sunday before Christmas, or you'll come back on Tuesday, Christmas Eve, because it's what mom and grandma always did and told you to do, and so you do it. And there's this feeling of like home and safety that, that comes when you enter a church at Christmas time. And these traditions, we're rehearsing uh, for ourselves the story of Jesus, that, that, that here is baby Jesus. Peace is on earth. Heaven is here. God and sinner are reconciled. We have unspeakable joy. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? These are great truths. If 93.9 um, if doesn't make your heart happy, then you started too early. But these songs that we sing, these traditions that we have, these family moments, they, they bring joy to our hearts. But while these are great things to celebrate great truths, I, I want to maybe poke the beehive today and tell you that they're not actually the meaning of Christmas. God and sin are reconciled. Great, but there's something deeper going on than that. Joy to the world. Great, but there's something deeper going on than that. Um, even a baby is born. Great. <laughs> but there's something deeper going on in the Christmas story than that. Ultimately, there's something more that these truths are driving at, something deeper, more profound, and also at the same time, in their, this is, stay with me, in their profundity, there is extreme simplicity. It's profound and simple. The bedrock foundation of Christmas is actually confounding to the mind, but it's simple to enjoy. It's as simple for us as breathing in and breathing out. What is the profound and simple foundation that Christmas is pushing us toward then? We've sang it, we've prayed it, we've heard it, we've read it. And you haven't been hit by it at all yet. My prayer is that you wouldn't be able to leave this room today without considering afresh the word that is the basis of Christmas. You know what that word is? It's glory. Glory. Drove on my way into church today past many well-decorated homes, and they have the word peace, they have the word joy, they have the word hope, they have the word Noel. <laughs> I want to redefine a Christmas tradition for you today, that maybe next year you would choose the word glory, glory. We can all agree that's a pretty churchy word, isn't it? Glory. I mean, I don't know when the last time was that you used the word glory. It was probably... Uh, last time you used the word glory was when you were talking about the glory days, which for everyone living in Chicago was 1985. Because there was a good football team. They were better than any football team has been since. They won something that no other football team in Chicago has won since. The glory days, right? Maybe the glory days for you are the 90s. I was a kid in the 90s. I was uh, uh, technically alive for the Bears Super Bowl, but not necessarily uh, in the same way that I was you know, conscious for Michael Jordan. 
and the glory days of a dynasty and how great it was to be in Chicago. The glory days. It's, it's the good old days. The, back when things were great. That's what we talk of when we talk about glory. But how would you define glory in the Bible? Glory in the Bible is not necessarily the good old days. This week I racked my brain, my soul, considering the full implications of how the Bible portrays glory because the more I looked at glory in the Bible, the more the simple definitions of honor and praise and worth seem to fall short. I talked to any pastor who would listen to me this week, pulled any book I could find on the subject off of my shelf, I tuned into leading theologians, even brushed up on my Greek poetry from the first century and from the eighth century BC. After all of that, do you want to know what I discovered about glory? It is, as John Piper called it, the most uh, impossible task in the church is to define the word glory. It's our impossible task. It's something that we cannot do, but we must try. So defining glory in some sense is like asking for a definition of air. You know what air is, but put it in a sentence. We exist because of air, and if air ceased to exist, so would we. At the same time, the same thing is true of glory. And if all of this already sounds too ethereal for you, I want you to lean in this morning because where we learn the most about glory is not in Greek poetry or not in deep theology. It's, it's in this very simple story of Christmas. It's a great thing for us to see at the beginning of Jesus' life. We see what it looks like for this child to be glorious and for God to be glorious and for us to give him glory. So I want you to open your Bible as we read out of Matthew, but I'm going to be in Luke this morning, Luke chapter 2. You can flip in your apps or uh, open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to start in page uh, in, uh, verse 6 this morning. Well, you're opening up. You can open up to verse 8, but I'm just going to set the scene for us in uh, verse 6. While you're flipping there, here's, here's uh, Luke 2, verse 6. It says, while Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I wonder if over the years, the Charlie Brown Christmas specials, the multiple times we've read this, you know, my family, we read this verse before we were allowed to cut into presents on Christmas Day. Some sort of like spiritual torture, I guess my mom inflicted upon us. Mountains of presence and no, 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 no. We will read Luke 2. And uh, how many of us have read this so many times? You could just kind of quote it in your memory. You see it in your mind that nothing strikes you as odd about the birth story. Something strikes me odd about these two verses. I wonder if it doesn't feel weird to you as well, though. Doesn't it bother you that Luke gives literally zero information about the birth of Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? Luke did not hang around young women who are having babies today. If you want to hear the most glorious stories today, the most glorious stories that you could possibly ever try and tell or hear are birth stories. Women in our church have babies, and 
All of a sudden, they'll come to church, they'll show the baby to other people, and, and the first question that other ladies ask are, tell me everything. And men look for an exit. Because <laughs> we're like, whoa, we've been through war. We don't want to know about that war. <laughs> if you want to hear a good glory story, you ask a woman who's been through labor. I think I'm just making the point that Luke was a man and recorded the man's version of Mary's story. It's very simple. It's very clinical. It's very uh, blasé. She had the baby. That was what he said. She gave birth. Wrapped the baby in cloths, laid him in a manger. There's no place for them in an inn. And tell me, where's the glory in Luke 2? In Jesus' case, the glory isn't in the birth. The glory is somewhere else. Verses 1 through 7 are all about how it came to be that Mary gave birth in Bethlehem. But verse 8, like a movie director would move the scenes or cut to a new scene, Luke moves the camera for us to the other side of town. Look at me in verse 8. This is where we're going to camp out the rest of the morning. I want you to see the glory here. Look for the glory. Be on the lookout here in Luke 2, verses 8 and following for the glory. You'd expect it to be in the manger, but look at where Luke puts it. He says, in the same region, there were shepherds. Everybody say shepherds. Just want you to get a picture in your mind of what a shepherd looks like. And the sheep that they have, the little staff perhaps. There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. So that little pretty cute image of the shepherd that you have with a cute little you and his is not true. They're on guard. They're uh, awaiting uh, whatever danger might be lurking in the shadows. It is pitch black dark outside. It's the type of dark that makes you want to grab a flashlight whenever you take the trash out at night. That's the dark that it is. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the, say it with me, glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. Of course they were. There's the glory. The glory is shown to the shepherds. Luke says it shone and it freaked the shepherds out. If you've ever been pulled over late at night, not that I'm speaking from experience, you know that police lights shining in your rearview mirror, that light suddenly shining in the darkness is terrifying, disorienting even. We can imagine the fear and confusion that these shepherds experienced when they saw the angel and looked around at the light. But I want you to look at this text very clearly. Look at this. The glory was not the glory of the angel. Look at that, that third line. It says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. It was the glory of God. The picture is that the shepherds were enveloped with this glory light of God. In the midst of them stood an angel. The light was God's glory. The angel was simply God's messenger. We know a little bit about how glory and visibility works if we look back at Solomon dedicating the temple. The glory of the Lord comes and fills the temple. But when the nation of Israel turned their back on God, the glory of God departed in a rather visible sense. So maybe it gives us a sense of what glory is. It came, it filled the temple like smoke and haze, and the people knew God was there. But then when they turned away from him, the glory departed, and it departed for centuries until this night, until this moment, for 
literally hundreds of years, Israel had not seen the glory of God until it showed up on the backside of Bethlehem to a bunch of shepherds who were unaware. An angel burst onto the scene and God's glory reappears in the blip of history that it is. This night, God's glory came back. And it came not to the prophets, nor to the kings, nor to the priests. It came to shepherds. Let me see why this is surprising, because all of us are numb to this story. Um, You've watched Home Alone. You've watched Kevin McAllister escape the two bad guys by hiding in the manger scene at the nativity as a shepherd. Shepherds are such a common part of Christmas for us that it doesn't seem shocking. Are we seeing what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap this evening while angels sing with anthems sweet and shepherds watch our keeping? It's just like it's a, they're there with Joseph, Mary, the angels, and the shepherds. Of course you're going to have shepherds. It's like why wouldn't you have shepherds at the birth of Jesus? But the question really is why would you? Let me tell you about shepherds. Not being one, I feel a little at a disadvantage. But what uh, historians have shown through the writings in the first century is that shepherds were one step in society above lepers. Shepherds were, it was a forbidden occupation for most Israelites to have. To be a shepherd was to be considered a thief and to be considered an outcast. To Maybe the most um, hard evidence for us to think about is the fact that uh, we have rabbinic literature from the first century that says that the shepherds were ceremonially unclean all the time. They, they, They had committed atrocities against God's law. They had not kept themselves pure. To make matters worse, the shepherds were at a bit of a disadvantage because they worked a job. I don't know how many of you can relate to this. They worked a job where they couldn't necessarily get back to the temple every Sabbath or whenever they needed to offer the sacrifices. And so they were always in the state of being perpetually unclean. They couldn't get themselves out from being in this unclean state, which meant that they were always banished to the outskirts of town. The, the, the best way that I can sort of show you what a shepherd was in our maybe American history is to think of an outlaw in the wild, wild west. Sort of this nomadic persona, someone who's always bumping up against the law, someone who if they were put on trial in court as a witness, you would not listen to what they had to say. That's a shepherd. They were chewing, spitting, cussing outlaws. And this is the group of people that the glory of the Lord shows up to first. It's where Luke records the glory, not in the manger where you would expect it, but in a quiet, forgotten field outside of the town. And uh, what does the angel say to these outcast shepherds? The angel says to them, fear not, verse 10, for, I be, for behold, I bring you good news, I'm going to come back to that word in a moment, of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you. We'll come back to that in a moment too. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying 
in a manger. Fear not. In your mind, can you see the majestic angel having reduced these tough guys to the fetal position, saying to them, I'm no enemy. I have a special announcement for you. I have good news. Good news. If you're a church person, that should scream off the page to you as some sort of code. Good news. What is the good news? What could there be good news from an angel, from a messenger of God? Being sarcastic, because I hope you're drawing the connection to the good news being the same exact word that we get the word gospel from, the, the good news, the evangelistic message that God is here. It's as if the shepherd are hearing from the angels these words, hey shepherds, you are about to hear the gospel. It's about joy that is possible for all the people that a savior has been born nearby for you. It says unto you. This news is about a person. Right now he's a baby, but in this past, this baby's been rumored to be coming. He's the Savior. He's Christ. And he's the one who's, once he's had his way on earth, is going to ascend to heaven and every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that this baby that's been born nearby you is actually the Lord. I think if that happened today, the, the angels would end this by saying, isn't that amazing? Merry Christmas. Like, here's the greatest news, the greatest gift you could ever receive has been born unto you, shepherds, you who are left out to the outskirts of town. You have a savior. You have a shot. You have a chance. God has come as a child to put right all that has been amok. Luke records that the glory of the angel, uh, the glory of the Lord shone around the angel, but we also have to recognize the divine glory in that message. The baby is a savior Christ, the Lord. Three different titles, descriptions of who this baby is, was, and will be. It's a massive announcement. And notice this, it's for the whole world. It's for all the people. It's such a huge worldwide message, which extends even to you and me today. But the message continues. It's specifically for the shepherds, personally. The angel says, here's a sign unto you. This will be a sign for you. You know how this isn't a sign for you? It's because you can't go to Bethlehem today and find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in the manger. Try. I dare you. That would be taking the Bible and extending a promise beyond what it's supposed to do. We've got to be careful of that. This is a specific promise for the shepherds. And I think if we can get inside the mind of a shepherd and not just assume our own little nativity stories that we've been taught our whole entire lives, that of course the shepherds were there. If we could assume uh, that what they were thinking in their outcast nature and their, uh, their, their fearful disposition, I think this would be the most terrifying for them. Not that there was an angel standing before them screaming the glory of God, but instead that they were being invited to go find the baby. If I was a shepherd and an angel told me, you will find the baby, First of all, that's not a suggestion. That's a command. <laughs> it's like the angel saying, go right now, find this baby. But also, you will find the baby that I've just told you is a savior who is Christ the Lord. If I was a shepherd, I would be thinking to myself, you're telling me that the Messiah from God, the savior of the world, the king of of all kings, has been born 
today. And they want me to go find them? I don't think those parents are going to let the likes of me show up in their nursery. Shepherds, considered as thieves, they exercise often what's called the five-finger discount. Probably thought to themselves, we're never welcomed in people's homes. Why would we be welcomed in the home of the king? And yet, I think the angel tells them, this will be a sign unto you. Very specifically unto you. Because the angel probably anticipated these fears. It says, you'll find the baby wrapped not in a christening gown, not in the arms of a maid, but in swaddling cloths, which were like onesies for peasants back then. And in a manger. Friends, don't you see that the angel's announcements to the poor shepherds was that this baby wasn't from the upper strata of society. He, he was born among common parents who were just like them. And this is one of the great things that I think Christmas forces us into. It actually, uh, force is probably the wrong word, it invites us into. Christmas, no matter who you are, no matter what strata of society you're from, Christmas, here's what it does. It invites us into seeing the glory of God. Christmas invites us to come and see this glory, this glory that is found that God is with us. No matter who we are, since God's glory showed up to the shepherds, the lowest of the low, it means that there's hope for anyone and everyone. And this is really good news for all the people. God didn't come to the top 1%. In fact, he came to the bottom 1% and invited them into his royal presence before he invited anyone else. Which means... No matter who we are, no matter what privileges we think we have or don't have, God is inviting us to come see his glory. This is a tremendous truth at Christmas. That news would have been wonderful and terrifying on its own, but what happened next punctuated this exchange as only heaven can. Heaven emptied the dugout, so to speak, of all of the angels to the earth. And they arrived on the screen, the multitude, thousands upon thousands of angels, burst onto the singing. They sang out, verse 14 records it. You guessed what they sang about. They sang out, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Don't miss the glory. Glory to God in the highest. Which really forces us to deal with this question. What is glory? What, what is this? Glory, it's more than praise. It's certainly praise, but it's more than that. It's more than splendor or light. It's certainly that, but it's more than that. What I want to do this morning is maybe contrast glory, God's glory, with an element that we actually can define a little bit more clearly, God's holiness, God's holiness. And listen, just look at me for a second. This is going to be deeper than you can handle, but it's going to be over faster than you imagine, I promise. <laughs> Scripture repeatedly emphasizes that God is holy. It's his, what we call his essential nature. 
To be holy means that he is holy, he is perfect, he is distinguished, he is set apart, he is supreme, he is pure. That's kind of like my rough definition of it. They're way more technical than that, but that's really the essence of what it means to be holy, to be perfect, to be set apart, distinguished, supreme, pure. God's holiness is what allows him to be perfect. Perfect love, perfect justice, perfect mercy, perfect grace. This divine character is holiness. This is who God is. He is holy. Remember Isaiah records the moments when the angels are crying out to one another in the throne room that he sees. They cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. It's a thrice repetition in the Hebrew. That was how you would emphasize to the utmost degree. We had Harry Carey who emphasized it well enough for us to get the sense of how great holiness is. He used it the wrong way, but you get the point. That's how we would have yelled holiness today. Holy, holy, holy. What it means is to the uttermost degree, this is who God is. You don't see in the Bible love, love, love. You don't see in the Bible wrath, wrath, wrath. You don't see in the Bible justice, justice, justice. You see holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then what does the angel say? They say the whole earth is full of his glory. There is this connection between God's holiness and his glory that we have to see. If God's holiness is his divine attributes, then what we can say about glory it is, is this. It is the manifestation of God's divine character. God's glory is whenever that holiness shows up in a way that we can touch, taste, sense, feel, or hear. God's glory is the visible outworkings of his holiness. I'm almost done. Stay with me under the water for a second. God's glory is how we see his holiness on display. God is good because he's holy and whenever we see his goodness, we are seeing God's glory. God is loving because he is holy. But whenever we see God's love on display, we see and behold God's glory. God is loving. God is good. We see the glory of that. And that glory points to his holiness. God's glory then is the culmination of all that God is. So, You've hung with me so far. Thank you. One more moment. God is glorious because of his essential character. God is not glorious because of our praise. You know that, right? Like, like God does not need you to be glorious. God does not need anything to be glorious. God didn't need the Old Testament to be glorious. God didn't need a temple to be glorious. God doesn't need our praise for him to be glorious. God needs nothing because in and of himself, he is glory. E.V. Hill, the uh, famous black preacher of not too long ago, he pastored out in L.A., a giant church. He had a way of talking about God's glory this way. We, we, would, we would say it. Because God is, in his essential character, glory, God's glory could simply be put, 
that God is. <laughs> just that he exists. We don't make him exist. We don't add to his glory. God just simply is glory. God's glory is that God is. And E.V. Hill, upon thinking about this one day, he was reading the 23rd Psalm, which begins, The Lord is my shepherd. E.V. Hill was thinking about that, and he got stuck on those first three words. He wanted to get to the word shepherd to think about what it means for God to be our shepherd, but he couldn't get past the fact that the Lord is. And upon reflecting on this deep truth, it took him a whole plane ride from Orlando to L.A., a whole plane around just thinking about the fact that the Lord is. He is. He said that God's glory is his isness. The fact that he just is. And so he's glorious. You remember what Moses stood at the burning bush and talked to God. And he asked, he questioned. He was a bit of a skeptic and a cynic. He said, well, you want me to go to Pharaoh? Who, who am I going to say send me? And God's response is, you tell Pharaoh, I am that I am. Which means, I am the eternal now. I am that I was, I am that I is, I am that I will be. And that's really bad grammar, but that's amazing theology because it shows us the glory of God is just simply that he is right now. God doesn't have to try to be glorious. He already is glorious. You and I don't add his glory. He is infinite already, which means this. I, I like to think about it this way. I got this, this watch. It tells me all of the, I should never have bought this watch. I'm so distracted by it. I got this watch. And um, one of my favorite things, is it tells me my resting heart rate. I always am trying to like think really hard to get that down. As if I had that superpower. Just think it slower. And... Um, I think about God's Apple Watch, if there was a thing. I think when he logged on to that resting heart rate button, he'd just see the words, glory. God's default mode, his resting heart rate, who he is just by himself is glory. It's glorious because he is. So glory to God in the highest which just simply means this, that shout that the angels erupted with on that shepherd's hillside just simply was, God is. He's here. He's come. But more than that, he is glory. He is perfect and holy, and he's showing off his holiness. Glory to God in the high. He is, his peace rests here on earth. He is, and he's present with those with whom he's pleased. The glory of God is here. It's the manifest presence that reminds us that God is. And so you know the rest of this story. The shepherds go. They go to find the baby. Verse 16 tells us they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it, which makes me think that there was probably more than Mary and Joseph in that area. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Christmas invites us to go see the glory of God, but I think it also invites us to believe God's glory. To believe the fact that this God is. 
The shepherds made known the saying that had been told to them. What did the shepherds tell the people around the manger? Well, they said that an angel said this baby was good news for all people. He was a long-awaited savior, the reconciler of humanity back to God. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is our king. But I wonder if the shepherds didn't also tell the parents about the glory light that shone around them when the angels first arrived. I wonder if the shepherds didn't tell them about the doxology that the angels were singing. Maybe we're still singing that song of glory in the heavenly host. I wonder if they didn't stand over this baby's manger and just feel the weight of God's glory as they beheld that God is. Certainly the cynic would say just because they coincidentally took a stab in the dark and found the baby doesn't make this baby the Messiah. No, but it takes faith to believe. But it doesn't take blind faith to believe. God invites us to see his glory even in unexpected places. And when we see it, he invites us to believe it. To believe. Oh man, I got little kids still. Don't mess this up for us. But so much about Christmas is about do you believe You know what I'm talking about? Too often the object of that belief is a rotund, commercialized grandpa. Not an eternal Lord. This baby in the manger would one day grow up, would one day die, would one day come back to life and say to his followers, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. Standing there, these shepherds marveling at the baby in the manger, Mary and Joseph and all who heard the story marveling at what they saw of the glory of God there in that manger, that this baby, in this baby, God is. That might sound like little baby Yoda theology about baby Jesus, but the basis of it all is faith. That God himself was wrapped in the form of a baby. Only a perfect and holy God could pull this off. This baby we see, it's the manifestation of God's glory, that God exists as a human. It's mind-blowing. It's mind-numbing. It's exhausting to think about. I mean, I, I, I spent, Scott, how many hours did I bother you with this week thinking about this? I rewrote this message four times. I can't imagine listening to this message How deep and profound and confusing and exhausting is the depth of understanding the glory of God. And in a moment, though, these shepherds look at the eyes of a sleeping baby and they know God is there. And they see glory. To mentally understand God's glory is almost impossible. And yet, each and every one of us have inside of us this thing that allows us to do it. To understand God's glory, it's almost as if I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to put down in words what what glory actually means in relation to God. But I know, I know that we've already been successful in seeing and participating in God's glory. And here's how I know it. And I'm done after this this point here. You can come out of the 20,000 leagues under the sea in a moment. I just want to help us see, before I sit down, the reaction that this glory might ought to have every time you contemplate the depth of nativity. It's the same reaction that the shepherds had in verse 20. They say, the shepherds returned, one more time, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen as it had been told them. 
When you see the glory of God, you believe the glory of God. And here's what I think really boggles our mind. By faith, we receive the glory of God. Christmas is an invitation for us not just to see God's glory, not just to believe in God's glory, but you got, you got to see this, to receive God's glory. That you can actually partake and receive something divine from God. This is everything we've ever wanted in the garden. What did we want? But to be like God in his glory. And on our own, we fell apart because we did it our own way. But at Christmas, there's this invitation to do it God's way. To come into the divine essence of his creation and his created order and his purposes. And in doing so, we find that not only are we just observers of God's glory, we are participants in God's glory. And that may seem heretical to you. I hope it does because I want to prove it to you and then I want you to be convinced forever. Around the manger, those who were considered thieves worshiped the sun and his glory. The shepherds who were standing over the crib, I don't know what Mary and Joseph thought about having shepherds come. I know my wife would have had a, had a with their shepherd stick keeping them at a distance. But in that moment, beholding that infant in the manger, the shepherd sensed that God's manifest glory had changed everything in the world. And I can't help but imagine what that moment must have been like for the shepherds. The shepherds who had always been pushed out of society, pushed out of the presence of God because of their uncleanness, pushed out because of their reputation. And here were shepherds welcomed into the newborn room of the Messiah, bearing good news that was told to them by God and his messengers, that this baby was born for all people, but somehow in their attending that manger side, we see that this baby came especially for the poor and the outcast. This baby had come to them just as much as they came to him. The glory appeared to them as much as they gave glory in return. And this is, I think, the simple part of glory, the breathing part of glory. Listen, since God is, everything he does is enveloped with glory. God created the heavens and the earth, and they declare the glory of God. The birds of the air and the flowers of the field, Jesus said, were not even Solomon was arrayed in their glory. But of all that God made, people, people are marked with God's glory. We deeply feel this, but we don't know what to make of it in our own humanity. Some people call it romanticism. Some people call it nostalgia. But it is a quest for glory. We try and satisfy our own glory hunger with our own accolades, accomplishments, and acclaim. But every single time we get a hit of glory, it fades away and we want another. We were never created to glory in ourselves because we were created out of God, the God of all glory, the God who is glory. And because he is, we are. Say that in a way you understand it. We are because he is. We were made to reflect his glory, to glorify God. And How do we glorify God? What does it mean that the shepherds went away glorifying God and praising him? What can I as a finite being contribute to an infinite God? The answer is nothing. 
He needs nothing from me. He needs no praise from me. He doesn't need my worth. He doesn't need my recognition. When we come here at church and we sing these songs about how good God is, you know what we're not doing? We're not propping up a deficient God. We're not trying to blow wind in the sails of a God who needs our help. (laughs) Oh, man, we are terrible at this in America. Because we think God's glory needs to be defended by us. Come on. God needs nothing from us. When we realize that he needs nothing from me, not my worth, not my recognition, not my praise, when we consider the response to Christmas as if it were us giving God his due honor, we fail to realize that Christmas invites us to receive God's glory, to receive it. C.S. Lewis reminds us that it's not what we think of God that's important, but it's what God thinks of us that's important. What does the God of all glory think of his creation? One day we'll find out at the final examination of that, C.S. Lewis wrote this. I want to bring this to you. This is from his book, The Weight of Glory. There's a short sermon, I guess. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, that last judgment, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Christmas is an invitation. God says to us, come see my glory. Come believe my son, my glory. Come receive my glory. And the shepherds modeled this for us. They left praising God and glorifying him. And so the question is, how do we glorify God and thus receive glory? Well, you put your faith in the baby as your savior, as your redeemer, as your king. You declare what the shepherds declared out of faith that this baby here in a manger truly is the glory of God, the God who is. You give your life to his life. It sounds so profound, but it's really quite simple, and you can actually start doing this today. Since we're the creation of God's glorious God, we're designed to acknowledge his holiness and his glory. It's the air we breathe. All it takes is that you would acknowledge God. This is what the shepherds did. They acknowledged who God was. He's the baby. They acknowledged what God did. He sent his savior to the world. And in that simple acknowledgement, they were transformed, as the Bible says in another place, from one degree of glory to another. They were like those thieves who were destined to be hung on the cross next to Jesus. The end of Jesus' life, he was surrounded again by those considered thieves. One of them looked at Jesus and ridiculed him. 
failed to acknowledge the glory of the king, but another looked at Jesus and spoke over him and said, you fool, do you not realize that we've done everything to deserve this punishment? This man's done nothing wrong. And he said, uh, he said sir, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He looked at Jesus on the cross. He acknowledged his glory, that you are the God who is. (laughs) Do you acknowledge that God is? Do you acknowledge that God is this child, this infant that came to earth in total humanity, out of God's perfect holiness, that you might be called the most glorious name in the world, also a son of the glorious God.